ago, um, we invited you to let us know what books, passages, or specific verses of the Bible, or even topics that you would like to hear preached um, here at Pillar Church. Uh, your feedback was outstanding. It actually generated a lot of work for, uh, for me. Um, so thank you. It was really encouraging, really encouraging to me. So combining your ideas uh, with some of the ideas from our elders, we've got the next year of sermons mapped out. It's in my office. Uh, it's on a whiteboard. Some of it's electronic now because every once in a while we move that around like for GTO events and stuff and it gets erased and so we have to piece it back together. But, so there's the next year. There's where we're, there's where we're going um, if you want to read that. Um, but that, that's you guys. You gave a lot of great feedback and all, listen, I want you to know all of the feedback is represented on that board. Philippians was a top request, so that's what we did first, right? We just finished Philippians, and I, I want you to know the reason why we started there is because um, the greatest number of you guys said, hey, I, we'd really like to work through Philippians. Um, so that's what we did. Someone asked for a sermon on family worship, not worshiping the family, but worshiping together as a family. So that's next week. That's not today. That's next week. Um, and then the week following, we'll begin a series in the book of James where we'll spend our summer. James probably came in second place behind Philippians, okay? So it's going to be a great summer in James. Um, thank you. Again, thank you for all of that feedback. This morning, we're going to hit another request. It's a single verse, and it's John 10.10. John 10.10 reads this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So let's do some work this morning to make sure that we understand that verse in context and not just off of a coffee mug. And before we do that work, uh, let's pray together and ask for the Spirit's help, okay? Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for another day of showing us undeserved grace and kindness that cannot be measured and we experience all of that grace and all of that kindness specifically in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to submit to the Father, uh, to descend to us, to go, come down low to us, to live uh, just as we are, and to, um, to obey the Father perfectly on our behalf, and then to die a substitutionary death in our place taking all of our rebellion and wickedness and crediting your righteousness to us so that we too can be accepted sons and daughters in the Father's family. Thank you for sending us your spirit and Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving us the gift of life, abundant life in Jesus. Um, we need your help this morning. We know that you were sent to us as a helper. We need your help, even just living out this, the truths that we just sang in that song. We sing glory to God um, and, and we Part of us means it, and we want to mean it fully, but we have been raised in a, we have grown up in a culture that values self-glorification and actually teaches us to pursue our own glory, but we don't even need that tutor. We instinctively run after our own glory rather than pursuing your glory, and so even now as your sons and daughters, we need your help in crushing those rebel tendencies and rooting them out and exposing them to us and increasing our desire to live for uh, your glory, our affections and our allegiances for you. So please do that this morning as we look to your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Hey, so shortly after getting out of the Marine Corps uh, a very long time ago, um, actually this year more than any other year, I've seen more retirement pictures flooding my Facebook feed. All my, my entire peer group, they've either pushed well past 20 or this is the year, like they're, 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 they're done. I saw another one this morning actually. Um, so shortly after getting out, I moved to a small city in upstate New York um, by the name of Binghamton. Has anybody been to Binghamton, New York? Yeah? Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> Linnea and I, so we met there at the small college, a small Bible college. We lived there for 10 years. Emma was born there, uh, right on the Susquehanna River, I think. Right, Emma? Right. Born in Binghamton. So that was home for us for a decade. Binghamton was once a cutting-edge city. IBM put Binghamton on the map back when IBM was something that people talked about. It was a computer. They made computers. Um, they were a big deal. Uh, well before Apple and all those things. So they put Binghamton on the map. There were several uh, cutting-edge factories there, but it's, not, it's a forgotten city now. It's a forgotten city. I mean, the claims to fame for Binghamton are um, chicken speedies. It's the best sandwich you've never eaten. It's spelled S-P-I-E-D-I-E-S, chicken speedy. We can't even spell correctly in Binghamton, but it's a really good, it's a really good sandwich. Tony Kornheiser, pardon the interruption, ESPN, uh, is a proud Binghamton alum. And Flo, the progressive insurance girl. <laughs> so there you have it. There's Binghamton. <laughs> it's covered, right? Um, turns out, we, we've come to find out after living there for a little while, Binghamton is in the top 10 U.S. cities with the least sun and the most clouds. It actually shockingly beats out Seattle. Like, everybody just thinks of Seattle in that way, but... Um, Binghamton, just the way the, the mountains are arranged and the valley, it's in a valley, it's just the way the weather patterns work, um, it's actually Binghamton. It's a gray and gloomy place. Um, Binghamton is regularly in the top five for most depressing U.S. cities. When you read those lists, Binghamton is consistently in the top five. And then all of the health-related issues that go along with those statistics. And uh, just a couple years ago at one, there's a national award for this. It's the number one least optimistic city in the country. <laughs> so we're good at something. Um, so no kidding, just as I was kind of reading over this again last night and browsing the internet at the same time, because that's what we do now. There was an article that was published last night, and it said, if it's sunny today in Binghamton, it will be the first four-day stretch of sun without rain since well over a year ago. Just been a long time. When Jesus arrived, the world that he stepped into was Binghamton, New York. Not geographically, but it was gray and it was gloomy. Of course, we're not talking about the weather conditions either. We're talking about the condition of hearts, the spiritual condition of a people, individually and collectively. God's people were in desperate need of rescue. Life for them was a perpetual day of clouds and thick darkness. And for some of you, even hearing that sentence spoken out loud, you immediately think to yourself, like, that's, that's my life right now. I feel like I am in a perpetual day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, sadly, for God's people at the time, the very, the very people who should have been helping them and encouraging them and pointing them back to Christ um, were these spiritual leaders who were actually a big part of the problem. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel talks a lot about this, a lot. And in Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse four, it'll be on the screen for you, it says this. This is speaking about what we would refer to as the pastors or the spiritual leaders of the day. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, 
the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. I just want you to notice a couple of things. First, notice how the people are described. You see the words, weak, sick, injured, strayed, right? That's, that's a, that is a dark and gloomy time. Notice what these spiritual caregivers weren't doing. They, they were not caring for these people in any way according to their need. In fact, Ezekiel says, with force and harshness, they were ruling over them for their own good. And so God's people, in verse 5, it says, God's people were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when that is a reality for any people, they become food for all the wild beasts. Vulnerable. Very, very vulnerable. That's what's going on. Some of you sitting here feel like, man, I've been a part of a church like that. Like that, that was actually, that's been my experience in Christianity. Ezekiel would continue in verse 11. He gives us what our father says about this reality. Thus says the Lord God, verse 11. I want you to notice what our father says about himself and what he is going to do. There's a lot of first person pronoun going on in this section. He says, I myself will, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and I will gather them from the countries and I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of country, of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. He's going to feed them and bring them to rest. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. All these things that the spiritual leaders weren't doing. God says, I will, I will do this myself. And the fat and the strong, the spiritual leaders, I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. And I love the way he finishes here because of what it means. He says, I have spoken. When God speaks, it's as good as done. How did he call the world into existence? He spoke it into existence. Um, God's word is just as powerful as God's acts. When he speaks, it's as good as done. So I want you to keep these prophetic words in mind. You're like, man, Ezekiel 34, that was a long passage. I thought we were doing John 10, 10. We are. But in order to see the, the significance of what's going on in John, we need to have that background in, in Ezekiel. So keep Ezekiel's prophetic words in mind as we read um, Jesus' own words in John 10 now. We'll read, um, I want you to see where John 10, 10 fits. So I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 18, but don't despair. We're not going to then work through all of 1 through 18, okay? We'll focus in on a small section there. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them in a different way, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in, and he will come out, and he will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. That's exactly what was going on in Ezekiel. He flees because he is a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. That's good news because this was a Jewish audience. So he was talking about God's first family, right, of descended from Abraham. And this is Jesus signaling very, very early on. You guys don't know it yet, but there are people around the globe who are going to be adopted into my father's family. So we are those sheep from somewhere else that Jesus sought out and brought, brought home to his father. So we will listen to his voice too, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Anybody ever, they kind of ask you that trick question about Jesus, like who killed Jesus? How did, who killed Jesus? He, he had authority over that moment. He, he, he laid his life down. Nobody took it from him. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So in this passage, Jesus very clearly tells us, he says, listen, I am the good shepherd and I am the door of the sheep, saying, I am the promised shepherd that Ezekiel was talking about. I'm that rescuing shepherd. That's what he said in verse nine, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus' audience was so familiar with shepherding and shepherds. That was their world. Like you all are familiar with military acronyms. You all stand around and have conversations dominated by acronyms. And then outsiders step in and they're like, they have no idea what you're talking about. It's a different language. But you know exactly what's going on, right? So shepherding and shepherds are a little bit foreign to us kind of like those military acronyms for people outside of our subculture. But everybody who was listening to Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he was invoking all of this language and imagery. They immediately understood a shepherd was a protector, a provider, and a rescuer. Like Those ideas would have dominated their minds. as Jesus. Shepherds were, were these guys. 
And so implicitly, as Jesus is using this example to talk about himself, Jesus is telling us, telling them, I am your rescuer. I am your protector and I am your provider. Okay, that's what he's talking about when he's talking about being a shepherd. So we're going to see three, three big ideas as we work our way through with Jesus as shepherd, Jesus as protector and provider. Jesus, number one, Jesus, our protector, saves us from that which would destroy us. Okay? Jesus, our protector, saves us from that which would destroy us. Number two, Jesus, our protector, gives us a life-changing peace. And number three, Jesus, our provider, satisfies our deepest hunger and thirst. So number one, Jesus, our protector, saves us from that which would destroy us. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will be rescued. Jesus was talking specifically about a sheep pen. And here's something we don't know because we just don't deal in sheep, do we? Unless you play Catan. You play Catan? I played some Catan last night. I won't tell you how it went. There were two types of sheep pen. There was the sheep pen on the farm, and there was the sheep pen out in the field when all the shepherds went TAD or TDY, right? Two different kinds. One that was all built up and nice near the farmhouse that did not necessarily require a human being to be out there for the safety of the sheep. It was built up. It was good to go. And then there was a sheep pen that was out in the field. They would have to go find new pasture to, to, to feed the sheep well, new water. And they would take the sheep out to a field and just stay in one location or two, you know, for maybe a night or two and then move on. So they would just build these crude sheep pens. They would stack some rocks up. Um, they would make the top of the ring kind of jagged with whatever they could. And then there was an open door. You can actually see something like this up by Nago. There's a little waterfall just south of Nago. And um, farmers in Okinawa used to build these very same kind of pens to keep the wild boars out of their rice paddy. So you can actually see one, see one up there. So Jesus is talking about that second type in the field where it was just a rough circle of rocks. And then there was a small open space for the sheep to go in and the sheep to go out. But they didn't have time to build a gate or a door. So this was a real vulnerability. And what the shepherd would do is he would protect his sheep by spending the night lying across the open door. That's where he would position himself, between the sheep and all of the danger that was out there. He would sleep there all night long, literally becoming the door. That's what Jesus is saying. So when Jesus says, I am the door, he is saying to us, I protect you, I save you, I rescue you by placing my body between you and your enemies. I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what it means. He actually does. He did right in the doorway between us and all of those dangers lurking out there. Jesus is saying that I alone save you. I, I am the door, not a door, not a way to be rescued or saved. I'm the door, nothing else. Jesus is the way out of destruction and he is the way into peace, guys. There is no one else who can do this for you. And so we ask the questions, okay, thank you, Jesus, but why do I need rescue? Why do I need a door? Like, I think I, I can handle this pretty well myself. What exactly would destroy me if you weren't between me and that threat? Well, for starters, God's wrath would destroy us. We need something between us and God's wrath, his righteous judgment for our rebellion against him as our creator. God is clear from Genesis to Revelation all the way through, justice is going to be done. You actually heard him say that about the religious leaders. He said, I'm gonna judge between sheep and sheep and they're actually gonna eat this justice that they have not been practicing. Justice will be done. 
Uh, rebels will be judged for the rebellion from the creator. We need rescue from that judgment that would destroy us because every one of us stands condemned. So God's wrath, we need rescue from our own rebellion, a lifetime of choices which lead to death, even if we didn't face God's judgment at the end. Our, the choices that we make in rebellion are so destructive to ourselves and to other people. We need rescue from that too. We need rescue from substitute gods that we all worship. In Psalm 115.8, the psalmist says this about substitute gods. It's not it. Let me tell you what the psalmist says. That's my fault. That's not their fault. I didn't mark it well. Psalm 115.8. Listen to this. Talking about idols, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The psalmist is saying, what you worship, you become like. And what he's saying here is, you become powerless and lifeless. Those substitute gods, those idols cannot give you life. They cannot, you built it, you construct it with your own two hands. It's actually dependent upon you. It's no God. You become like, we become like what we worship. Um, this statement about being, I am the shepherd and I am the door of sheep. If you're familiar with John, it stands in a long line of I am statements. Uh, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And in that paragraph, what we learn is we need rescue from anything or anyone other than Jesus who has promised to satisfy the hunger of my soul. Right before Jesus, we spend a lifetime pursuing substitute breads of life. That'll satisfy me. That'll satisfy me. I'll find my identity there. And every one of them proved to be um, fake. Right? Keto bread. It's just not a thing. You need rescue from that. Fake lights of the world. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So any worldview without Christ at the center is a lie. And it is death-inducing and life-taking. And then Satan himself, Jesus says in this paragraph, and um, in verse 10, he says, he, he tells us what Satan's goals are. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy you. You need rescue and protection from him. So Jesus is saying to us as the door of the sheep that I alone can save you, nothing else. I am the way out for you from that destruction, and I am the way into peace. No one else, nothing else. But yet our hearts get so wrapped up in all those other things, don't they? And those other people, which would maybe a helpful question to ask is, if Jesus alone is this for me and nothing else can do or be what he is or does for us, why does my heart, why do my emotions, why do my affections get so wrapped up in this? Why do I place so much expectation on this thing or this person to satisfy me in a way that only Christ can satisfy me or to do for me what only Jesus can do for me? It can't save me. He can't save me. She can't save me. Why do I put this expectation on this person? And why am I crushed when they fail or it fails? It's because we have so many substitute gods, so many idols going on underneath the surface. But Jesus alone, our protector, saves us from that which would destroy us. Number two, Jesus, our protector, gives us a life-changing peace. And that's what he means when he says, my sheep will go in and they will go out. That's a Jewish idiom for the ability to come and go in safety and security. Kind of like my kids here. 
Um, I really don't give any thought, I don't give any thought, this doesn't mean other members of our family don't give any thought, to them going in and out the front door and opening the front gate to our, our yard and descending the stairs, just riding their bikes in the street, running around the street, kicking the ball in the street. Like, that's just, that's our yard. The street is our yard. I give no thought to my daughter going to the grocery store or going to the Daiso on her own. I wouldn't give any thought to my son doing those things. That's why I'm married. And, <laughs> and he's still thriving in life. Like, so that's, that's, there's that. But to go in and to come out or to go in and go out, that's an idiom for the ability to come and go in safety and security. He's talking about a life lived with confidence in Jesus who protects and provides. And that gives our soul, it gives our spirit a certain measure of freedom that we would not have outside of Jesus. So David, who was a shepherd himself, wrote this. He wrote, when I am afraid, which is good for us, that's instructive. David was a man after God's own heart. Some people talk, like to talk about warrior kings. He was that. He was a warrior. He was, a, he was all these things. He was the epitome of, mas, uh, of masculinity. This is David. And he says, guys, did you hear this? Not if I'm ever afraid. What did he say? Learn to say those words. When I am afraid. Okay? When I am afraid. I put my trust in you. In God I trust, and so I shall not be afraid, because what, what can man do to me if Jesus is the door, and he is between me and all of my enemies, and he's sovereign over them? What can man do to me? For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. That's Psalm 56. A couple years ago, our acting Homeland Security, which I think changes every two to three months, um, said, he said, he said, the terror threat is worse than most Americans realize. You know, these optimistic messages that come from places. He said, the terror threat is worse than most realize, saying, this is what he, said, this is what he went on to say. It's a little elitist, but he's, you know, whatever. Some people would never leave their houses if they knew the truth. Okay. Some people would never leave their front door if they knew the reality of what was going on around them. Just like, let that sink in a little bit. But listen, guys, we scoff, you Texans especially scoff, um, but too many of us live this way, don't we? Like spiritually, I'm not talking about your physical house or like I'm talking about spiritually and the things that we fear and the choices that we make in life that are directed by fear and not confidence in Jesus, who is our good shepherd. I think we could call it a gospel sluggishness, really, like a, a gospel lethargy. We're just kind of lethargic or um, lulled to sleep in this, this gospel sluggishness. And I say that because uh, you've probably heard this before, but Proverbs twenty-two thirteen says, the sluggard, right? There's, so there's our, slu our sluggishness. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside and I'll be killed in the streets. I can't leave my house. Like he listened to the Homeland Security guy. Can't even leave my house. There is a lion out there and I could die. Again, we kind of laugh at that because none of us really live that way um, in the day-to-day -day in terms of physically, but many of us live that way spiritually. There's a lion outside. And so we make choices based upon whatever that lion is for you rather than making our choices based upon confidence that Jesus is sovereign over that lion and actually has laid himself down between me and that thing that I fear. So we're, we're hearing in this narrative that 
Yeah, there, there is a lion outside. That's the beauty of Christianity. We don't, fake Christianity would say, no lions. Or fake Christianity would say, if you claim there are no lions, there are no lions. If you just believe there are no lions, they'll all go away. The gospel says there are a lot of lions outside, and we do tend to be afraid of them. But the gospel also says, trust your shepherd, because just as David the shepherd boy killed a lion with his bare hands, he was a type or a shadow of the the true and better shepherd that would come. And Jesus is the true and better David who kills those lions and those bears and is sovereign over them. And not to switch metaphors on you, but to switch metaphors on you. Jesus himself is a lion, yeah? He is, he, is, he is more powerful. He is almighty over all of those other things. He is sovereign over them. He's the creator, and he's laid himself down between us and them. And that's why the psalmist could write, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So there it is again. David can admit he's afraid. We can admit there's a lion outside, and we can talk honestly about life, not in a fake Christian bookstore, coffee mug, bumper sticker kind of way. Life is almost a perpetual valley of the shadow of death sometimes. It's hard. It's real. We don't have to try to dress it up. We walk there, but we don't fear any evil, the psalmist says. Why? Because he makes it all better? No, because he's with us. That shepherd that lays himself down for your life, is he's present with you. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Trust in the Lord is safe. So Jesus, our protector, saves us from that which would destroy us. Jesus, our protector, gives us a life-changing peace so that we can make our decisions based upon confidence in Jesus, not based upon the fear of the lion in the street. And Jesus, our provider, satisfies our deepest hunger and thirst. Again, in Psalm 23, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I won't have any unmet desires. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And then this line, he restores my soul. That's the one thing that all the people that Ezekiel was talking about, Ezekiel 34, they needed this, a restoration of their soul. They weren't finding it. And the father says, I am going to come and do this for them. But you know what's important about Psalm 23? We're given a reason why the father does all of these things. Why does God care for us in this way? Why does he lead us to lie down in green pastures so that our souls can be fed? And why does he lead us beside still waters, a metaphor for peace and a quenched spirit? Why does he do this? Do you know the answer? This is a really life-giving answer. It doesn't sound like it at first, it's, but it is. He says, for my namesake. I do this for my namesake. And I'm like, well, I'd kind of like you to do it for my namesake, Dad. Like, do this for me. It's better for you that he does not do this for you because we're not very good sheep. Like, you remember how our story begins, right? He gave us life and then we ran away and we strayed and we were a wreck. And so he had to come to our rescue and a shepherd in rescuing sheep that have strayed and have broken limbs actually pick those sheep up on their shoulders and carry them home. There isn't a single one of you in here who wasn't carried home back into the pen. And he didn't do it for you because if our father did this for you, he would never do it because none of us deserve it. I mean, we, we rebelled hard and told dad we hated him and ran away and chose everything except him. But he does this for his name's sake. And we don't stay in the sheepfold because we're great little sheep now that we're Christians and in God's family. 
We stay in the sheepfold, if it will, and Jesus stays between us and the bad things, if you will, for his name's sake, because he's, he is this kind of a shepherd, and he said he will do it, and so he's going to do it irrespective of your ability to be a good Christian, which is a really good thing for you, because I'm a bad Christian, and so are most of you. I'll leave a little room if you're still kind of putting yourself in that. I don't crush you too hard. We're just not good kids, guys. Our affections are so weak, and our allegiances to our Father are so weak. So he does this for his namesake, and that's a really, really good thing. So we're surrounded by predators. That's what the gospel tells us. But we're secure, we're safe, we're satisfied. We can go risky places for Jesus. We can do risky things. And we can do all of these things and go all of these places with a soul at rest because of the presence of our shepherd, not because of a great, happy-go-lucky life. That's really good news, too, because circumstances do not have the power to control who you are or your spirit or your joy or any of these things. And it's good news for us because it means we don't have to settle for cultural Christianity, which some of you have experienced that. Most of us have and have found it to come up quite hollow and empty and um, sounds good at first because it sounds like it's all about you. And then the further in you go, they're like, man, this is not right. It's, this is not right at all. So we don't have to settle for that. We can lose our life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel and then find out the truth of what he says. When you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, there's where you find your life for real. There it is in losing your life, which is counter to everything we've ever heard culturally growing up in the secular world, if you will, if you want to call it that, and in, your, in our own little Christian bubbles. The gospel shatters both of those with the truth. And Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's a, that's a really neat word. Um, what it meant for Jesus' audience would be a super abundance, like an abundance that you can't measure. Give me a measurement, it will exceed your expectations. A super abundance. So two realities with that statement. First reality is this, we did not have life apart from Jesus. There is no life apart from Jesus. You may be physically alive, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally, there's death. Jesus comes so that you can have that life. So there's the first reality. The second reality is Jesus is really good to us because he gives us this life in abundance. Abundance. And as we know from the gospel, Jesus is not talking about stuff. An abundant life is not measured by the amount of stuff or that you have or that you don't have. In fact, Jesus would, would later say, this, from Luke 12, 15, he said, Family, be on your guard against all covetousness, the desire for stuff that you don't have, the desire for a person that you don't have, the desire for a career that you don't have. Guard against that because, he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you're thinking about a forearm tattoo, that would be a really good one. So it's in front of you every single day. My life is not found in the abundance of what I have. Life does consist in the abundance of a person, however, Christ himself. Jesus alone is able to restore your soul. Not more Netflix, not time away, not social media, not the next promotion, not more money, not a slower op tempo, though most of us would pay good money for that right now. Not a different, better, not a different or a better spouse or a spouse. None of these things. Again, David said this in First Chronicles. He said, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
So splendor and majesty are before him and strength and joy are in his place. Strength, the strength you need that we look to substitute God's for is in his place. Joy, the joy your heart longs for is in his presence. That's what, the, that's what he means when he says in his place. Where God is, that's where joy is found. But strength and joy prove elusive for so many of us, even those of us who would say, I've been adopted in, I'm in the sheepfold, I believe Jesus is laying his life down for me. He has and he continues to, but yet strength for my spirit just seems so hard to come by and joy is so far away. Why? Why is that? I think that's the case for many of us because we are created to run after Christ. We're created to run after Christ because strength and joy are found in him. We didn't, we ran away. We're rescued and our hearts are reoriented in that direction, so we'll begin running, him at, running after him again. But in our rebellion, in, I'm talking about our remaining rebel tendencies, the, the rebel tendencies that still linger from our rebellion. We still tend to run, here's one thing we do, we run after strength and joy rather than running after Jesus. And strength and joy will always outrun you. They run faster, they're that guy, that lady you never catch, and you wanna catch, but they're always in front of you you can't, catch, you can't catch them. You can't catch them. But yet we, we want strength, and so it feels right, and it sounds right, and it's even the advice that we give people. Like you, just need to, you just need strength. You just need some joy. Like Be joyful. And so in our rebel tendencies, we run after these things rather than Christ. In our rebellion, we struggle to live consistently with confidence that Jesus is our protector. We struggle to trust that Jesus is our provider, and so we find ourselves running after idols instead of running after Christ who owns strength and joy and gives them to us when we are in his presence. So let's, let's just kind of keep being honest because it's good for us. Our first tendency is to publicly deny that we do any of that. Um, it's a little uncomfortable. We tend to work at projecting an image so that others think that we do, that we are a good Christian or that we, I'm ha I'm, I'm, I have joy, I have strength, I'm a Christian, right? In fact, there's a, there's a popular saying that's it's been made popular through a movie, I think American Sniper, and through a book. Most of you have probably watched the movie. Um, some of you have probably read the book. It's the whole thing about sheep and sheepdogs and wolves and the little, the dad's kind of teaching his son about life. Do you remember what he says? You're either a sheep, you're just, which is not derogatory, just saying general population, or you're a sheepdog, like you're you're above and better, you, look, you care for the sheep, like you're, you're, you're a type of protector or rescuer or savior, you're a sheepdog, or you're a wolf, right? That's kind of the, the talk that the dad gives the son. Guys, some of you men especially need to hear this, like um, there are no sheepdogs in the gospel, like we're all sheep, and we're all stray broken sheep, and weak and vulnerable sheep, and you, you need a shepherd, like you also need a shepherd, you're, you're not, I'm not a sheepdog, in fact, if we want to just keep pressing, Jesus does kind of break it down, but he goes with sheep and goats. Like, he doesn't talk about any sheepdogs. You're either, sheep and goats are both in the pen, the goats are kind of faking it. Like, the sheep are there for real. Like, those are the two categories we could use, but we're all stray sheep that need to be rescued. We need, we're weak and we're vulnerable. So that struggle is real. Some Christian communities would say, just, just stop it, do better, be better. But it would be, it would be healthy for, healthier for us to allow the gospel to diagnose this tension in our hearts. Um, a guy, I want to give you a quote from Jonathan Dodson. And if you're looking for a good summer book, 
maybe something you've never read before, encourage you to Google this guy's name, Jonathan Dodson. Um, a lot of just gospel-rich uh, short books. And so he writes this. He says, we must spend time excavating our idols by asking good questions when we, of ourselves. When we sin, we do so because some idol has promised us power, prestige, influence, joy, peace, satisfaction, security, pleasure, etc. that is far more attractive than Christ at the moment. We never sin with a gun held to our heads. We sin willingly because it is overwhelmingly appealing to us. Man, I think he's right. I think he's really right. And so maybe a starting question for us to be as we begin this diagnosis and we begin this excavation is what lies do we subtly believe that undermine the truth of the gospel that Jesus alone is my protector and my provider? And if you need a good passage to kind of help you excavate some of these idols, Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 5, Jeremiah says this. He says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man or woman who trusts in man, in themselves, and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. There is no life in a, in a salt land. Life cannot flourish there. It's dry, it's arid, thirsts are not quenched, hunger is not satisfied. There's no relief, no relief. That is, that is the end of, of the road of pursuing yourself, looking inside for strength and joy or fulfillment, or looking to another created thing. But then... Jeremiah says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust, look at this, I like this switch, not just trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, right? He, this person is like a tree planted by water. Okay, thirst is being quenched, that sends out its roots by the stream, and he does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought. Again, I love this passage because it's honest. It's not saying that the one who trusts God will have an easy life. Notice the circumstances here. Heat still comes. There's still drought. There's still arid desert. There's still a year of drought. However, in trusting Christ, there's a stream present in this drought. There's life. There's nourishment. There's peace. Circumstances will still include heat and drought. You will still walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but you won't fear that evil because your shepherd is with you. And because he is with you, there is life and peace. So we can trust in man and make flesh our strength in many different ways. Again, just more questions as we, be, as we work to diagnose those. We could ask ourselves, what fears keep me from resting in Christ? What are the lions out there that keep me from resting in Christ? What is my greatest nightmare, the biggest lion? What do I worry about the most? Does my reaction to bad news produce in me doubt and fear, or does it inspire confidence to trust in God's providence over me? Does my reaction to bad news produce in me doubt and fear about my father's goodness, or does it inspire me to continue believing that he is a good father and that he will show himself to be good to me in these difficult circumstances? What do I rely on to comfort myself when things go bad or get difficult? What do I pursue when I am looking for rest, for my soul to be restored, my me time? What do I spend it in? I, or here's a fill in the blank, it's not a question. I would be joyful if, I just finish that sentence, right? I would be joyful if. 
And, and, and keep Jeremiah's words in your heart. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Blessed, however, is the man who trusts in the Lord. So the answer for us is to confess to Jesus all of the answers to these questions, to confess these answers in community to each other, and to pursue a rested and restored soul in Jesus. Today is known widely as Pentecost Sunday. For those of you who come from a church with maybe a higher form of liturgy or where you follow the church calendar throughout the entire year, some of you do, and that's great. Uh, you would know that today is Pentecost Sunday. What that means is we are seven weeks or 50 days removed from Easter Sunday. Pentecost Sunday commemorates the day that our Father sent the promised Spirit to his people. That's the celebration, the gift of the Spirit. Why did he give us his Spirit? Well, for many reasons. Here are just a few. We were given the Spirit because we don't excavate our own idols very well, or at all. So we need help. We don't run to Jesus well, or at all, some days. And so we, we need the Spirit's help. We don't trust Jesus well. We don't pray well for ourselves or for other people. And so our Father gives us the Spirit. Let me just encourage you with a few statements about this gift of the Spirit that Jesus says. Here's John 14. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, you know what he calls him? The name he gives him? Helper. More truth of the gospel. You need help. You need help. Like, we're helpless, and so we're given a helper. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He can't be with you forever if it's based on your performance. He has to be with you forever based on God's namesake, because I said I will, and I'm going to do it. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Notice all the pronouns, he, the Holy Spirit is a person, he's a third member of the Trinity, co-equal, co-existent with God the Father and God the Son. He's a person, he has personhood, we can talk to him, we can have a relationship with him. He's not a thing or an object, he's a person. And Jesus says this, he gives the Spirit without measure. Did you hear that? He gives the Spirit without measure. Again, I'll just have to say it, it's not about you. There's no second blessing of the Spirit. It's not that you get a little bit of the Holy Spirit when you become a Christian and your Father's waiting for you to prove yourself that you're a really good Christian or you have a really good follow-on experience to prove that you love him a lot. And like, all right, good job. Now you get the rest. No, he gives you the Spirit when you're adopted into the family. It's not about you, it's about his namesake. So the question is not whether or not the Father will give you the Spirit or has given you if you have repented and believed. The question is whether or not we will choose to live by the Spirit that has been given to us. Jesus said, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So that's the best help this, that the Spirit gives to us. He always points us back to Jesus, and that's exactly what we need. Nope, Jesus is your good shepherd, and there he is at the door. He's laid down his life for you. In Romans 8, Paul, man, Paul is all about the Holy Spirit's work in our life. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not even know what to pray for as we ought to, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's how the Holy Spirit's helping you right now. He's praying that your soul would be stirred with greater affections for Jesus and greater allegiance to him. And that you would have the freedom to confess the doubts that you still harbor in your heart. Every one of us could pray the prayer that we hear in the Gospels. Lord, I believe. Please help 
my unbelief. Don't pretend you don't have any pockets of unbelief. We all have pockets of unbelief, and this is how the Spirit helps us. And maybe, maybe my favorite verse in the Gospel of John, this is 663. Look at this. Who gives life? The Spirit. And how much help are you? None. None. I saw a little meme this weekend because uh, we're remembering D-Day, and it was posted by one of you Army guys. It had questions about, it was asking a bunch of series of questions that would come up with a number zero, and then it asked how many Marines were on the beach um, in Normandy? Zero. So I'm not sure, I'm sure there was a liaison somewhere, but zero. Um, guys, that's what John 6:63 is saying about our, our, our life. The Spirit is the one who gives life. We are no help at all. So this is what it means to be a Christian, to be able to admit I'm weak, I need, I believe Jesus alone has what I need, so I pursue him, I submit to him. I live by the Spirit, meaning that I turn away from myself. I don't look inward for this joy or strength. I don't look to other created things. I turn toward him through his means of grace, prayer, his word, participation in the life of the church, participation in communion, which we'll practice here in a moment, expressing gratitude even as I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, thank you, thanking him that he is with me. It's admitting that I don't know what to pray for as I ought to, but thanking the Holy Spirit that he is interceding for me on my behalf for the Father's glory and for my good. And in all of this, being reminded that our Father is so good to us in sending us the Spirit, because here is the stated purpose of his work. We'll close with this, Romans 15, 13. This is my prayer for you this morning, and I would invite you to make this your prayer for every, one of, every, every person in our church family this summer. May the God of hope, that's who he is, that's who your Father is, May he fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Not through changed circumstances, not through any other created thing or person, not through yourself, but that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your spirit will know an abounding in hope that you have never known before. Uh, let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You're good to us in sending us your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for always pointing us to Jesus. We thank you for giving us life. We thank you for sustaining our lives. We thank you that you bring the hope of our Father to us. And I would pray this morning for every person in this room whose hope is currently crushed or just tapped out, whose strength is gone, whose joy is depleted, Father, may, may their hope and their faith in you be restored as they see you work in their hearts, not because their circumstances get any better, but maybe even in the face of worsening circumstances, of a prolonged separation, of a prolonged endured hardship, in a season of doubt, in a season of sickness, that our faith would not be dependent upon you taking any one of those things away but that our faith would be restored, our joy would be restored, our hope would be restored by knowing you and your presence in the midst of those valleys of the shadow of death. Father, may it be true of us that we fear no evil because we know that you are with us and for us that is, that is enough. Father, thank you for showing yourself to be good to us through the Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.